recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery. This is The Poetry Project. Regita Sharma is the author of four poetry collections, Bliss to Fill, The Opening Question, Infamous Landscapes, and Undergloom. She teaches in the Creative Writing Program at University of Montana and is co-director of the conference Thinking Its Presence, Race and Creative Writing, which I just keep missing because of being pregnant and stuff, held at University of Montana in April 2014 and March 2015. In the poems of Brigitte's I was reading, the word tiny kept appearing. I was somehow not expecting to encounter a vocabulary in undergloom, not expecting to be overtaken by the trace of Brigitte's design. Is it some kind of lazy habit to think of vocabularies as belonging to a poetry that self-consciously obscures authorship? Is this lazy habit also racist? The poem, Five Questions Now Statements, ends with the words, quote, troubling the tiny, end quote. The note word on which the poem ends, in which the author troubles the overused idea of voice is tiny. In Brigitte's poems was exactly a vocabulary employed in service of recuperating subtlety, the subtleties, those of noticing the impossibility of being solidly within the status of author inside the circle of poets and poetries. Why is this always so surprising? Being met halfway in the very small space of ordinary authorship which would be denied to me if I did not insist on this very, very small thing, this having a vocabulary of experience where I am not magnificent, but tiny, where the necessity of magnificence is radically eliminated by presence. I love the prayerful oddity of Pragita's diction. Quote, I'm traveling around this time with a group of listeners, fabricating little urchins. My mind is at unrest, for I am a drawstring tying up sex and heat. A solid equidistance of rapture and mistakes scares me into this place of bleeding a sheep out of its discourse. She writes this in the poem Travel, which creates in me a virtual crisis of wondering who is speaking. And this is a wonder, a wonder that for a moment I lose my place and then see it can only be you, Brigida. There you are. I'm grateful that this art has grown into caretaking on a mass scale from her place in Montana. Please welcome Brigida Sharma. Thank you, Simone. And it's, a, it's just an honor to read with Christina and um, looking forward to it. And I, I love the Poetry Project, and I'm really grateful to be invited to read here, and I have so many good memories um, of, of working here and reading here and having a community here in New York, so thank you. I also have some Missoula community here, and that's nice to see. So, um, you know, maybe I'll read, I'll read from I'll actually read one poem from Infamous Landscapes. 
and then I'll read some from Undergloom and then some new poems. But I thought um, I would start with a cat poem <laughs> about in Brooklyn. Um, but I was I was at a friend's house, um, I guess, ten years ago, <laughs> and uh, I encountered a cat who um, I've read this poem before, but um, who was mute but would meow all the time. So, the silent meow. Under the parts of the Brooklyn Bridge, I was with Haiti and Angus. We were discussing his cat's mute mewing. Haiti and I perked up. What a metaphor for a woman, we said. This was a little off the cuff because we were off the cuff and we're not that kind of feminist not to make such a drab and pathetic metaphor likening a woman to a cat. But we liked the persistence that the mute cat exhibited, its mewing, demonstrative yawns with nothing coming out. It was the kind of perfect caption we had for such obvious things and obvious needs for day-to-day -day living. I miss the Brooklyn Bridge. So I think we, I think Simone talked about, I don't know if you said grateful or gratitude, but this poem is called Grateful. Grateful, having the desire or reason to thank somebody. Your poetry about outsiderness to outside the outlining norms, it made you look ungrateful. Erosion of integrated feelings, a breakdown of the soft side, like bad cheap bread, you could tell. People thought they ordered a baguette, but they got you, bad cheap bread, dressed with bad dressings, trying to taste good. Of the towardness you yearn for as though it were inclusion, towardness replaced with something, not a collective revolutionary subjective empathy, no descriptive abject space to share with others, the way you did in your urban environment, the way you used to follow and share abject feelings with others, with a kind of careful and mindful allegiance, if this is even possible. And now you become the descriptive abject space and you're horrified. On top of that, you find that everyone claims to be a Marxist when they're really staunch, they're really a staunch constellations they're staunch constellations of teetering materialists. So when you are a glaring materialist with inner Marxist tendencies, you may appear tacky, but you are the outward of everyone's inward. It's all the same. There are attempts to stick you with the bill, to pat you with a so-so brush off, or you think everyone is a modernist, flashing the collective rejection of individual heroes or limiting the play between subject and object to offerings of a specific alien play, tending to the tiny residual personal fires or shocks to the system. However, you're no fool. You realized all this very young. What t-shirt must you wear to convince them of this? A recess for adults leads to more shameless bullying, an articulation of disclusion. The patent expires on your wares. You're interested in a new contemporary musical scene. I have some Whitman in here. This is my nature poem. Wildlife. A fostering of spirit and humanity dissolved. 
This is the institution where poets are demonstrably immersed in their craft. Words formed images in their insistence on seeing canyons, ranges, and valleys. Words formed particular insights into how within these landscapes, birds and animals are seen. For example, the flammulated owl, mountain plover, or blue sucker emerge and confront the poet seeing. These vantage points stocked with animals and birds induce a kind of human throb, one that begets knowing how to see more deeply, a rich felt sensation. But what is seen in the poem about the natural world? Perhaps there is a perception of some inscrutable invocation by a poet with whom attributes under the scarlet sun unearth the stardom of a creature of being, a form of other, sanctioned. Who knew that in finding formulas, one would awaken the insatiability of the mouth eating its words? The sheer velocity of certain kinds of poems with their orphic will turning you into nothing, a poet as humble reader of occasion, or you will find bullets and you will fire these words into the air. What should I say to this kind of illicit behavior, twindom turning into a mob, animals behaving like humans, little sheep turned into diamond star wolves, a sharpshooter's mission to free fall, the noiseless spider ate his own impure poem, long legs breaking with need and intention with the encumbered weight of snow. Heyday. With meager spirit lodged heavy in the heart, I will notice how, now how it is, I will notice now how it has suddenly turned abundant. I'm fond of particularizing in certain ways, exploring this thinking in its sincere form as if it were a particular heyday and afterglow. For example, last night we all hit the table with clenched fists and the free thinking characterized in declarations of expression tied up with the red string of feeling was so right in purpose one attaches oneself to a person who is an idea who turn, in turn squeezes your hand to share it. Don't discount lightness when it occurs. Life with its usual bare corrosive sense keeps abuse thick and present. And so when we were all self-effacing in ways that felt spunky and kind, I became elated. I was pushing my identity, the real one, the one not struck with terror, the one not struck down by anyone. This is what I want every day, what I want for myself and for the future. Fumes of fallen rot go wayside for the hung, dissident tree treasures. I shake hands with everyone I meet. I say, bring it on, I've had it all, have you? And now I'm, just, now I'm justifying my means. I'm not what you think. I'm inside a world of smallness, of fortitude and sorrow. It has all the trappings of symbolic engagements with society, yet there's no poetry in people. Moreover, I do love living for people in the way we must pass around the cup, in the way we push ourselves in through the door with limbic certainty, with challenged eyes and wires pulling us up. We have trees now. 
more so than we did before, but now we know what to do with them. We hang our troubles on them and wipe our shoes against them. We go lethargic on the porch. We tear the bark with spindly fingers. We soak up the sun with restless hunger. So much sky, we say in unison. Where does it go? Do we follow it? Do we let it get away? For months, we splay without a fence, door wide open, blue and brash inside and out. Because we can, we keep saying, because we can. We face a lush sense of life that we have nothing to do with. We face our cravings and journey with a new kind, our new people. They all possess smiles and frowns, but more windswept expressions, no permanent downwardness of spirit, the way it looked back east. And since we've left the city to be ourselves, we still must face our needy souls, full of want, compulsions. Were we proud of this, the way we turned away? But we've protected these habits, foregone others in return. What is the profession of the culture hoarder? Who are the gatekeepers? Do we grace them with our backs? Moreover, our chests remain empty yet seductively warmed, burning by the fire. Our ass is cold and exposed. All the wood, crisp birch to shield our lazy lobes, rounded bodies, our cerebrum, cerebrums and other parts. Are we, awaiting are we awaiting cheerless ambivalence to greet us in the West, cavernous and cloudless, unaffected by beauty. Let's be petulant. This is us now, we say. We can't help but find ourselves lustful, crying alligator tears with pails to our eyes. We didn't know we were here, we kept saying. We didn't know how it happened. We thought and thought, and finally, we closed our doors on the trees to hide what we grew temperate for, but resolve didn't find us, not alive with force. We flew out of their arms. So I screened, and I'm in New York, and I get to say this in New York, cause I've, um, but I, I screened Shadows, um, Cassavetti's Shadows. Um, and um, I think you'll, you'll get the other reference in here, um, but I'll just let it be in the poem. <laughs> um, Love, Death, and Shadows, 1959, in Missoula. All errant glances looking off frame or directly at you, audience, in unresolved fury. I teach in our concave classroom with its ascending wooden hard-backed chairs and our flimsy broken shade with a stuck pull cord. Crimson light glares the room, so we squint to watch. I stand at a too large podium in a haunted building. I've been told some ghost stories, and I've been known to share radical ideas that were experienced as uncomfortable. Leslie Fiedler may have been in the same room, reconstructing the Eros and Thadanos, the interracial love he too foregrounded in essays, the anti-marriage, freeing the protagonists of classic American fiction from the adult entanglements of heterosexual passion, marriage, and domestic obligations. And he is writing in the 1950s, and Shadows is shot, Shadows shot in New York, where Fiedler's publisher lives, but Fiedler is here for some of the decade in his English department, understanding the racial conflicts and homoeroticism before he writes No in Thunder. After Shadows, we talk about the racial hierarchy of the characters and the theme of passing. What about hypodescent? And here, what do we make of blood quantum, too? 
and we haven't gotten to the heteronormative white culture of the literary scene at the highbrow party. And Leila Goldoni feels she can be Leila, and we are not certain if she can or not. What kind of identification can she really have, or is it character immersion? Who among us in this classroom is African American? Nobody. We finish the conversation about improvisation, acting, and natural feelings. We agree how much we like Charles Mingus and Shifi Hadi. We talk about poetics and code switching, and there is an elated sense of connection I start to feel. I want them to know that the heap of film on Cassavetti's floor was the poem representing his unknowable reach, and he was going to have to take on its contradictions without knowing 21st century critical race theory and let his characters talk through their ideas, assertions, and pain. The interruptions on screen, characters' eyebrows, their compositional faces studied, their acting and finish of a film that, in its early disappearance, its second version, screened with Pull My Daisy, still gave its transitions their moving edges and let Benny, Layla, and Hugh, as Kaylin said in class, give us a cohesive family. Their tenderness anchors so much integration during segregation. And it was here with Fiedler coming back to his raft and leaving the buffaloes of Montana for Buffalo, New York, a place where poets found poetics in the future somehow. Why are the themes of miscegenation haunting us here or befuddling? We have poets too. Are we still resisting remote adorations and narrativity's formula for what couldn't be said about love and death in 1959 and what still can't be said now? Must it be through the improvisation that we find the substance and look at its ghost sightings and who wrote or shot film of whom and why? And why do I stand here feeling like it's all so hard to hold on to? A legacy. All this noisy commotion isolated a fairly small universe of nothing special. I'd faced the assistant to the incumbent, his failed face of poetry bottomless with self-pride and a satisfaction that fed his wolf. And he was a wolf, and when I scoffed at him with the some penetration, I could see the clamor of his wounds, but also the vanity of his recognitions. He believed I was undeserving and thought it was his right to judge, and his judgment a stun gun took my gender and race and euthanized its center. And he thought this was an extension of the occult, that it was the intuition of a bright star affecting forward. I wanted him to see this in a particular light, but the particular worsened into a bruise of matter far more inhumane. And I fell into its hole, and he with his glee had no idea because his gender and race gave him the privilege to look down and see how my skeleton warped my will, but not the firmament of my broadness. And what I know now as measuring across power and enduring many luminary deficits that come out of symptoms and their fallen edges. This is for my friend Hedja, um, who, this is her image on the back. And this is her image on the front. And then Chitras is right here. Um, double Fantasy. So we both really loved the Double Fantasy album. <laughs> and she made all those listening to Double Fantasy. 
And she said, we have to do a whole art installation called Double Fantasy. We haven't done that yet. Um, for Hedia Klein. My copula connects me to you, though my tough luck connects me to heart valves. Inside, we know there's a formulated plea, an engine determining loyal sponsors. We're in embellishments of tough stock, trees with secondhand roots in the suburbs. But if you are my double, then I can find the person who knows I'm knowable, who knows there's more to me than age, rage, or running to cover, knows the mishaps from the adolescent's t-shirt, you with all of your soft fabrics and juicy gazing, your aesthetic of art as dump truck or art as raisin or art as mission accomplished. You turn the pleasure dome into itself. You blankly gaze at evil and call its bluff. You've guided my brightness to more want of life without your knowing you did. Oh friend, I run for cover to you from all mountain drops that are disguised as people, from ice inside of ventricles there is such a deer, your double here, falling alongside pairs of apartment pajamas, all striped or casually plaid. Um, I had read this summer, Alice Notley had a really beautiful poem that started with, you must do battle with arrows, and then it, it ends with, beauty still thy name. I'm telling you this because I first my first workshop, I had my students just write um, to that poem to see what they could put inside of it, and I did the same thing. And um, so, on seclusion, you must do battle with arrows, and it may kill your heart in the process and produce the love-stained stench of your collected works containing boundaries and the shame of their sober problems, bits describing loss, mirroring its inward entanglements, and glow torches you have never seen before. You light them with two selves and don't wait for anything to flicker false truths. You can discern the lanterns of falling men who burn down their desires with tiny humiliated gestures. The mountain peak is so high and you believe it gives you a majestic evening, the one you earned. Its embrace is a gentle coercion into wild wilderness of amenable tyrant tyranny of its expansion, grief's artillery to fill all of the black clouds, that sallow blue sky, beauty still thy name. These are all, the last three are for my late husband, Dale. Who would perform here on New Year's Day? Uh, New Year's, yeah, New Year's Day, and... I'm grateful we had those experiences here together. Irresistible grief. I'm talking my way back to the poem's turn and where it might lie inside my body, the one that empties itself out with talking or with sound. Phrases that feel perversely sentient and yet all wrong. Every night I talk with the hope that speech itself will burn me into the one true alphabet I can use to find the laudable and errant words that are reliant on describing the sickness I saw dismantle, sen I saw dismantle sense. It fucked ardor with its greed and gutted you to the outside. Your body thinned down to bird bones, and the poem will not turn towards anything heavenward. I won't let it.
There are no last sounds. The summer deck is filling with riotous rain pouring down from your hands, I think. I'm terrible at these supernatural images, and you wouldn't like it if I kept it up. But I know you are trying to water the plants and the seed seedlings and all of everything I might have neglected for the last three months while I'm here fucking it all up. You let me sit in my nightgown all day while I type on the computer under heaps of shitty books. You want me to move into something meaningful, and I know you are a function of whatever it is because you gave me all the departing desires as a way of teaching me to cope and to stay a poet when I don't feel like being a poet. But now the challenge is in how I put all this in me in the way you've always presented me with possibilities, a kind of irreverence of what to do with the heart and rage. You tend to those now and exactly in rain streaming, a figurative blue that pools and floods, damning everything but me with the incivility of domesticity, fighting to sound out all the activity no longer between us, unanswered in time and space. I would tell you every day if I could that you are still exuberant. So there's a funny thing when I was looking through is you have to be really careful when you're looking through your like dead spouse's stuff. So I forgot that we had, we had taught husbands together, Cassavetti's husbands. So he has this like these notes. It's like vomiting, uh, adultery. Um, <laughs> this the list of everything in husbands. I'm like, what the hell is this? And then I realized it's just the list of notes for us, or for our teaching husbands. So it's in here. Complicated spiritual grief. One. It was violent, and yet it was his deep breaths. It was violent because it was the kind of cancer to which people referred to as beastly, to pure evil, creating a shell of a person who has previously been a stalwart, a survivor, and then to not really believe in a Christian God or the devil, any cold face. I was left facing it. I'm a non-believer in some senses. When I faced it, all I had was his past before the cancer, and what was leading up to it, which led me down his rabbit hole, which may have included a brain tumor and, other, and many other tumors, all the spindly parts, things painted, drawn, or articulated for me by his admirers, spindly grievers. I couldn't look at any of them. Because I am the kind of non-believer who believes in the culture around me, looks for signs in it, I was watching for fragments, little public truths to arise out of our habits, like watching madmen or thinking about madmen, like Dale always said. Like Cassavetti's husbands, I found his notes for teaching that film with me, and at first I thought it was a personal confession, but it wasn't. It was a list of notes. So what do I do now? I grieve. I lust for company that I can't ask for. I turn into my own madman. Can I do this? Did he enter my body, his energy? Can I be him lusting for himself? Thanks. I'm very happy to be introducing Christina Rivera Garza. 
who is the award-winning author of six novels, three collections of short stories, five collections of poetry, and three nonfiction books. That's a lot. She is translated from English into Spanish, notes on conceptualisms by Vanessa Place and Rob Fitterman, and from Spanish into English, nine Mexican poets edited by Cristina Rivera Garza in New American Writing 31. I encountered the work of Cristina Rivera Garza through the translations of Jen Hoffer, um, who I was, I was just sort of, mar Jen had just been here at the project and I was just kind of marveling at her range and her depth of knowledge and information. And I just started reading through her translations and I encountered this work. I couldn't say, as Lynn Emanuel does in her introduction to Rivera Garza's work in Boston Review in 2003, this was 12 years ago, quote, reading Rivera Garza's poem, Third World, one cannot help but feel that a major literary presence has moved into our line of sight. An original and what will undoubtedly be influential voice has suddenly been made audible to our ears, end quote. I thought that was very strange. I suppose the line of sight Emmanuel is referring to is the line of those of us who read and write primarily or exclusively in English, as if this were the world language of literature. But maybe it's we who move into her line of sight peripherally. Her stunning and masterful poem, Third World, begins on the streets of the biggest city in the world they could be recognized by the jumbled excess in their eyes, by the way they levitated, tremulous, over impossible yellow thistles. They could be recognized, these creatures floating in a form of alienated strangeness in the biggest city in the world. They could be recognized by their way of being absolutely, roundly, cinematically wrong, writes Rivera Garza. When I think even for a moment that New York is the biggest city in the world, I am lucky to know others, my friend Jen Hoffer among them, who are not deluded in this manner. This delusion of centrality and of oneself as an arbiter of the impossibility of the stranger is indeed a cause of the terrifying reign of blood in her short piece, The House Onto Which, rain, uh, onto which Rained a Downpour of Blood. In the last couple of lines of that, no one cleaned the walls stained with time and mud and blood. No one noticed how they fell one after the other beneath the scarlet downpour. I'm honored and incredibly excited to welcome Christina Rivera Garza to the Poetry Project. So I'm going to start each one of the poems that I'm sharing with you with, uh, with a, a fraction, a fragment of poems by these uh, younger poets who, whose work I've been translating in, into English. So this first one is by Alejandro Tarrav out of a book uh, uh, whose title is The Disintegration Series. First loop, a shadow at the end of the whole, dialogue, Impossibility, two characters cling to each other, their voices fused together, distorted. I wanted to translate it. I wanted to translate it for you, own it for you in this language, 
own it, I tell you, tornado. Turn into a page you would understand. I want to understand it, so I threw myself towards the origin to translate the words, to turn them into this language for you. I want to tend to, I want to turn towards the origin, welcome it into a language by me that turns me into a tornado and takes me turned. And this is from, uh, this is a, a, an older work, Third World, the one that Simon mentioned. Uh, my friend John Hoffer translated this uh, many, many years ago. Um, so here it goes, Third World. On the streets of the biggest city in the world, they could, they could be recognized by the jumbled excess in their eyes, by the way they levitated tremulous over impossible yellow thistles. The city was also their house. They had a living room of brackish buildings downtown, a dark bedroom in Tlanesburgo, an enviable view in Belvedere, and underground pathways that everyone called the metro. In the kitchen, which was everywhere, the men came to know the bite of garlic intimately, and those who were going to be women wore glass armors instead of flowered aprons. They could be recognized by the agility of their thighs and the proficiency of their hands as they snatched. They were the diurnal animals that took the parks by storm, solid like a flagpole ringed with light. The length of it appeased by white, red, black flags. They, the ones with sad armpits and mouths bursting with the greatest hunger, flung themselves upon the roundness of the world with arms and legs made of net. They could be recognized because it was difficult to know if they were just going or if they were already returning aghast. They were the ones who sang hymns out of tune and walked upstream in parades, the contingent of dark individuals. They could be recognized by the way of being absolutely, roundly, cinematically wrong. But above all, they could be recognized by the excess in their eyes, obsidian stones inlaid in firm, emaciated crania, tremendously stunned drops, kites flying spiral. Beneath their light, the world was finally small, a broken toy that wasn't scary anymore. The third world was a hospital, a party, an orphanage, a rest home abducted from reality, the free territory of America, interminable like wretchedness, el terzo, saturated with piss and vomit like the whole country, motherland of those undone, of those wounded by desire, of those dead from so much dying, of those so often devalued, of those alone so comfortably uncomfortable inside their solitude, of those who are fed up, of those who are full of shit, of those defeated from the start, of those heralds of the truly true 
of those with no sex or with all the sexes, of those exiled from the city, of those necessarily without hope, of those with terrifying hopes, of those who later became warriors or professors or died of hunger, of those everyone. House that's cruel, house with cloud roofs, house where dragging yourself was walking, house with no entrance and no exit. Everyone said, let's go to the Terzo like someone going inside a seed. House that's artificial, house with no aurora and no respite, house of demolition. Everyone said, let's go to the Terzo like someone going beyond. They could be recognized by their steps, nailing themselves into the earth with a nail's compassion. They could be recognized by the fiery pain in their bones, house of the soulless holding onto their souls like an anchor or a last chance. And I was the man, and I was the woman. My presence was the state of the side of the metamorphosis. How the infectious terror of happiness raised blisters on my lips, crumbled the before under circular microscopes, opened the box of whistlings in pelvic dawns. Daybreaks etched with pale borders and fruity dissimilarities. I were another Rambo Dixit, but I was more. How to sing this holy sentimentality over trinkets, this diamantinically geological layer upon my skin, the blindness of prayer and the magnanimity of the gift. I was you, excessive dog with yellow eyes, you, proclivious girl, you, glaring sunny fragments and green city band. How to say third world without burning my mouth with golden trifles. I was a neighborhood accumulated on the outskirts of form, about to exist and about not to exist like faith narcotic in the ellipses of a monumental mouth. We laughed as if we were shelling nuts, as if we were instilling the show among the noisiness of vast Alexandria. Salt, death, in that geodesic place where the infinitesimal shoot of the carnivorous plant grew, the one we called pleasure, when we wanted to say June's light. How to say, let's go to the Terzo without falling face down among objects. We were mythological taters, lusts for anonymous, unruly bells, the worst of the worst, what is left after basic consummation the longitudinal fibroma of sugarcane stalks, the iridescent pulp. How to say the terzo once again without putting out this match of words, this inaugural illumination that wakeful unveils the tactile veridically. 
We were a vertiginous peeking out from behind the veins, an aerial industriousness of legs and fingernails and cartilage. We were saliva. And this is a translation of Jen by Jen Hoffer. This is something that I love, a piece that I love by another Mexican poet, Oscar de Pablo, in commemoration of me. He said, put this verse on your mouth, efficient. He did not say, reader. He called you efficient. Once supper was over, he took his pen and said, put on this black boon of ink made out of air, this paper of air, put inside your mouth, efficient. He said, build from your mouth, my bridge, made out of bridges, made out of word, my bridge of word, made out of host, a pearl world color, a taste of wheat color. Hold this bread word as bread in your mouth, hold it in your mouth, hold it touch of my tongue. I knew the next day would be Friday. I knew that somehow you would betray him, and yet he rinsed his mouth out and ordered coffee. Once supper was over, he took his pencil, he took some paper and a pencil and called you, did not call you reader, he called you efficient. This is a more recent work. Um, it's included in a book um, whose title is El Disco de Newton. And this is a, a work of self-translation, I believe. Conjuring. There was something human in all that. Someone walked or dragged along the undergrowth and stopped every now and then to take a breath. With time, it could be clear that the person who walked or dragged along was a man. It is at all possible that the first image was a bird's dream. The undergrowth is a terrified accumulation of carnivorous plants that thorn and thorns and violence, sky blue humidity and foliage. Painters recommend the use of cadmium and natural sienna to get the most intense greens, and certain combinations of cobalt with very dark cadmium, burnt sienna, or warm orange to get alternative shades of green. Waking up is like looking at a clearing through the undergrowth where a woman rests with her eyes closed. In the poem, Sleeping Beauty, Jose Carlos Becerra writes, and we laughed a little bit awkwardly, a bit ashamed at our own creation, like the children we had killed, those, who through, those two through which we went through to get to this beautiful and hesitant gaze of today. At the center of everything lies naturally murder. Death is never a vacillation. I looked for the first time at the paintings of the series Briar Rose by Edward Burne Jones at a small museum on a Caribbean island. It was a very sunny day. 
How many dreams are there in a 100-year-long dream? Children, this is clear to all, are often murdered by adults. Together, the two of us, about to seize mystery, about to be invaded by nakedness and all its extensions, about to see how the princess who had been sleeping for centuries opened her eyes, about to witness how the young traveler found the door of the enchanted castle, about to see the possibility of the existence of such a castle, about to give life to the spell, and in such a way about to conjure it about to touch the cape, the sword, and the mere possibility of a royal lineage, about to only, about to something. And when you look back and see their destroyed, surgically dismembered bodies, do you feel something? The hand of a child trembling. Duchamp's green cameras is still a mystery to me. Waking up is one of the most difficult moments of the day. Guilt is, at times, an emotion. In order to get a very shiny green, painters recommend the use of viridian. Large format paintings make, make us believe for a moment that we can jump into them without any difficulty. In the Briarwood, right in front of the five sleeping soldiers, I thought, in my will burns a dark bird. Words have suddenly acquired the weight of unknown facts. They now have the greenish air of the statues. Briar Rose is a version of Sleeping Beauty originally written by the Green Brothers. There is always something morbid in dreaming does the child know that he's about to faint under the sharp edge of a furious sword? I do not know what the girl knows. It is an exaggeration to describe a front yard as an undergrowth. But I insist, when you look back and you are able to see their faces still burning and their thin bodies spread with geometric rigor on the green, humid ground, do you feel something? When pronouncing the words undergrowth and spell, the speaker might have the impression he is talking about the same thing. Feeling is a very large green. In the garden court, right in front of the six sleeping women, heads on bent arms, all of them languid on wooden tables, peaceful, I thought. Perhaps we will never know if we were palpated by the kind of life we never managed to know. Few things are more terrible than being witnesses of the death of children. Palpating, appalling, palatal, pupil. And inside the council chamber right here, in front of the king of bent shoulders, walking through thorns and steel fabrics, I said, I do not know who we are anymore either, Jose Carlos. The one thing even more terrible than being witnesses of the death of children is treading very slowly on their light, fragile bones. Very often, looking at the sky is useless. 
It is at all possible that the image of a man and a woman treading very slowly on light, fragile bones is also the hallucination of a bird. Do you feel something? And when dreaming arrives, right before closing one's own eyes, but after the wheel disappears, do you feel something? There is a line right here. Often there is, in dreams, the that last 100 years, something human and something malignant, something like the green with much cobalt, something like that red, thick and broken. And this is by a, a poet, a very admired friend of mine, Juan Carlos Bautista, also from Mexico, from the southern state of Chiapas. This poem is Heads. First omen, it will rain heads all over Mexico. That's what he said. A rain of heads will fall over Mexico. I got up into the air where a rain of heads was falling, colossal heads. Folks were out of control. Folks were but naked, blood, furious. A bad feeling tossed and turned in my bed with the pain of a maiden, darkly drowsy, bloated by fear, with the rotten whizzing of her sentimental chest. Heads fell down. They crackled all night over tin roofs. Heads like a volley of peons over the chessboard. Decapitated heads, that violent submission. And this is a, a poem I wrote um, the night I learned that Maricela Escobedo, an activist from Ciudad Juarez, had, be, had been killed on the streets of uh, Chihuahua, capital city of Chihuahua, in, the, in northern Mexico. A. Something ought to be understood. The way we look at the sky, for example, the way we look at our hands' palms, and the way we advance tentatively. At times, it is necessary to touch a wall, and at times, it is necessary to scratch a wall. Pain in fingertips, under fingernails, the knuckles lock. The wall exists because of the echo which feels it. The wall is your against what? This is as far as they go, right? What we do, in fact, is falling apart. And then, if possible, we fall apart again. Reading is a way to prostrate oneself. B. Speaking and crawling are often the same which means we touch the floor with our bare hands, advancing tentatively, which is not like walking, a movement healthy and articulated and vertical, which is to go back in time, encroaching over childhood or irrationality, stammering, stumbling, which means to break apart, get it? To say here, to say it hurts here, to repeat it, which means I won't get up, which is this asking that they come back alive, crawling or walking, talking, you win, get it. To fall to one's knees is an event cosmic in nature. See, 
The one who prays kneels down, the one who begs, the one who insists, bring them back alive. The one who murmurs that they find their way back home, that they hear me, that they not be terrified. The one who moves his lips so softly, so sweetly, so silently. The opposite of confession is the offering, the contrary to this fingernail. The the one who continues praying through the body under the sheltering vault without the ceasing look for genuflection, reverence, adoration. Look out for fear. Feel it. Feel the terror. Something out to be understood. Look at the empty hands, for example. Feel the weight of the body not there. Scratching is a way of growling with fingers to shiver, to wound. A wall is also a thing made out of night dew. E. The one who asks, or the ones who ask, those who get together to clutch each other's hands and pray, begging is an infinite action. The mother who sees through her daughter's veil, the sister who waits, an uncle or cousin is taking his leave, a spectral circle. We will have to unearth a door in the middle of here, a doorknob in the margin of a rectangle, a diminutive key, a sewer, the hand trusting the step. You take the step. F. Breaking apart is breaking apart again, always. Repetition as echo, or the shadow of an echo, or the stain left by the shadow of this echo. I lit 435 candles yesterday. Consuming is a way of producing time. This is the wax I use to mold your neck, your mouth, your hair. G. Something ought to be understood or something ought to be seen or something must definitely collapse over something else. Faith is a matter of walls or the blind. The one who whispers, bring them back alive. Bring them back. The one who turns the key. The one who asks, is somebody out there? This is by a very good friend of mine, another poet that I admire very much, Sara Uribe. By the way, his uh, her, her, um, her book, Antigona Gonzalez, translated by, uh, by J.P. John Plucker, is going to be out these days. So please read it. It's such an important work of contemporary Mexican poetry. This is not from that Antigona Gonzalez. This is from another book of hers that I also admire very much. Uh, a fraction, a fragment of a poem whose title is uh, Jericho. Not beside me, but clinging to me. She sleeps and she's nobody and she is my sister. Bird of sudden blindness, the overturn, the pavement, the circumference of a death rattle to tighten, to be ravaged by, to return to, trace willing to turn into stone, a burst, pointless missile behind eyelids, 
of a face than neither chariot, driver, nor vestige. And I want to end this reading, reading something in Spanish, uh, a poem, and that in fact I, I design. But uh, it's, uh, it's written, it's, uh, these are the words of Luz Maria Davila, uh, a woman who lost two kids in uh, the Villas de Salvarcar massacre uh, three years ago, three or four years ago. Uh, so you will hear her words, words by Mexican poet Ramon Lopez Velarde, words by uh, Mexican journalist Sandra Rodriguez, whose uh, translated work of nonfiction about um, violence in Northern Mexico is also, it's gonna be out very soon. I highly recommend her work as well. Sandra Rodriguez, remember that name. And uh, this is La Reclamante. Discúlpeme, señor presidente, pero no le doy la mano. Usted no es mi amigo. Yo no le puedo dar la bienvenida. Usted no es bienvenido. Nadie lo es. Luz María Dávila, Villas de Salvarcar, madre de Marcos y José Luis Piña Dávila, de 19 y 17 años de edad. No es justo. Mis muchachitos estaban en una fiesta y los mataron. Masacre del sábado 30 de enero en Ciudad Juárez, Chihuahua, 15 muertos. Porque aquí, en Ciudad Juárez, póngase en mi lugar. Villas de Salvarcar, mi espalda, mi fulminia paradoja. Hace dos años que se están cometiendo asesinatos, se están cometiendo muchas cosas. Cometer es un verbo fúlgido, un radioso vértigo, un letárgico tremor. Se están cometiendo muchas cosas y nadie hace algo. Y yo solo quiero que se haga justicia y no solo para mis dos niños. Los difuntos remordidos, los fulmíneos masacrados, los fúlgidos perdidos, sino para todos justicia. Encarar, espetar, reclamar, echar en cara, demandar, exigir, requerir, reivindicar. No me diga por supuesto, haga algo, si a usted le hubieran matado a un hijo, usted debajo de las piedras buscaba al asesino. Debajo de las piedras, debajo de las piedras, debajo de... Pero como yo no tengo los recursos, limosnas para las aves, mis huesos, mi carne, de tu carne, mi carne, póngase en mi lugar, póngase mis zapatos, mis uñas, mi calosfrío estelar. No los puedo buscar porque no tengo recursos. Tengo muertos a mis dos hijos. Vi actor, entierro a cielo abierto que significa literalmente dar limosnas a los pájaros. Tengo mi espalda, mi lágrima, mi martillo. No tengo justicia. Póngase en su sitio, villas de Salvarcar, ahí donde mataron a mis dos hijos. Usted no es mi amigo, esta es la mano que no le doy. Póngase, señor presidente, en su lugar. Le doy mi espalda, mi sed. Le doy mi calosfrío ignoto, mi remordida ternura, mis fúlgidas aves, 
mis muertos. Y la mujer bajita de suéter azul salió del salón limpiándose las lágrimas. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org. Thank you.